Kate Grenville, thank you for coming back to Mulaney to speak to us again. It's lovely to be here again. Thank you. Thank you. Kate Grenville's published nine books of fiction and four books about the writing process. Now, I've taken that off your website. Is it 10? Is this now number 10? Or is this... Anyway, look, I would, we want, it, would just stick with that. Would it sound pretentious to say I've lost count? <laughs> <laughs> probably would. Her best-known works are the international bestseller The Secret River, The Idea of Perfection, The Lieutenant and Lillian's Story. The Idea of Perfection won the Orange Prize in 2000, and The Secret River has won or been nominated for too many prizes to recount here. Oh only that they include the Commonwealth Prize for Literature and the Christina Stead Prize. Since publication, it's become an international bestseller and has been translated into many languages. It was adapted for the stage by Neil Armfield, Stephen Page and Andrew Bovell. Now, I know that we're here to talk about One Life, this delightful book you've written about your mother, but I wondered if you wouldn't mind if we started talking a bit about The Secret River, sure. if, if only because a lot of people in the audience will have recently seen the adaptation on the ABC. And it also seems to me that the two stories, the one about William Thornhill and the one about, about Nance, are in, in many ways connected. Mm. How was it for you, though, as a writer, to see your work brought to the screen? Uh, look, it's very odd. I think the writer is probably the last person to be able to judge um, a, an adaptation because all you can see is the ways in which it is not what you wrote. Uh, look, I think what I think about it, though, is that it is fantastic that the story, by which I mean the real history behind that novel, the history of the atrocities that were committed uh, <coughs> by white against black in the early days of settlement, that that history is now reaching a whole lot of people who would never dream of reading, reading the book. They would never read the book, but they'll watch the television miniseries and uh, have that moment of being forced. So interesting hearing Oliveira talk because that's a very similar... It's like you're at the first generation and The Secret River is a book about the fifth generation on, but essentially it is the same thing. People who have to look squarely in the face the bad things that their own people have done. Yeah. So sticking with the writing, though, just for a moment, yeah. because, because I'm curious about this, I noticed that you have a credit as in fact you're the, the, the lead writer as the credit on, on the series. No, 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 absolutely not. I didn't have anything to do with it. Okay, so I, am, I get my facts from IMDb, Gosh. the International Movie Database, and it has you, it gives you a credit as a writer, not as the novelist. It says you're oh, not the Oh, that's terrible. Also. I must get that changed immediately. Oh. <laughs> no, really, I, I'm, that's shocking. That's really shocking. Thank you now, for telling me. Because there's two, there's two scriptwriters given there, but I, th I thought you must have been liaising with them. Absolutely and not, no, and they should not have done that. I wrote the novel, the novel is adapted okay. for the screen. But thank you for telling me, I'll chase that up. And, and did They're you cheeky, these television uh, so, people. So were you part of the production at all? Absolutely nothing to do with it, absolutely zero. I, I did have a conversation with the producers when it was going to be a feature film, but um, I had nothing whatsoever. I didn't meet the directors, I didn't see the script, I wasn't invited, well I was invited on set, but I didn't go. Okay, so I've got another question then in, in case of that, because, because I, thought that I thought you must have made an artistic decision to cut the London sequence out of the book. Right. I'm curious to know why, what you think about that, because they, they just start with the arrival in, in Botany Bay. That's basically. right. It's very interesting. So most people who see the t miniseries probably think that I wrote it. No, 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 no. It's only oh. only nerds like me who would have oh. looked on the international movie database. It does. It's not on the end of the. It's not on the end of the script. It's not. It's not at the end of the program. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Look, my my philosophy with an adaptation is that, um, you know, a, a film or a miniseries or a play is a completely different animal from a novel. They have completely different different things work in different media. I used to work in film, so I'm the, I'm the best person to, to realise how utterly different the entire experience is. So a book has to be transformed. It has to be more than translated. It has to be adapted, in fact, meaning it has to be changed. Yeah. Now, the play that Neil and Andrew and Stephen did was fabulous. I also had absolutely nothing to do with that. But what I said to them was what I would have said to the people in the miniseries if they'd asked me. I, what I said to Neil and Stephen and Andrew was, for heaven's sake, do not give me a faithful adaptation of this novel. A faithful adaptation of a novel on stage is going to be so boring and so much too long. Just write me a good play. And that's exactly what they did. They, did a, they have made a masterpiece 
which is recognisable as the secret river, but totally different. And it is coming to Brisbane, so you will get a chance to see Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So you fired me up. You wanted to ask me a question I hadn't been asked before, and you succeeded. Oh, we've got, we've, well, we might have, have some more. So in, in the introduction to this book, One Life, right, you point to Nancy's story as being part of a larger story, which goes back at least to Solomon Wiseman. In fact, you, the, the opening page is a family tree with, with Solomon Wiseman up there at the top of the tree. Um, in fact, uh, you devote a paragraph to, to Solomon Wiseman in the introduction there, explaining exactly how unsavoury a character he mm -hmm. is. Uh, he was, sorry. But because it made me curious that in The Secret River, when you transposed him into the fictional character William Thornhill, you made Thornhill a much more sympathetic character. And I wondered, I wondered what made you make that literary de decision to, to so transform Wiseman into Thornhill. Well, I think the adult Thornhill is not particularly sympathetic, but what I did want to do, I very much didn't want to have a book of goodies and baddies. So it was necessary for me to try to explain where he'd come from uh, and how little choice any of those people had about going back to, to London, even when their sentences were completed. Um, I wanted to show that the whole system in London was such that uh, once, you had, once you'd had glimpsed something else which Australia could offer them, you wouldn't go back. Um, it's true that I didn't, I didn't use the stuff about him being unsavoury, pushing his wife over the balcony, for example, and killing oh, her, which is yeah. the local myth about it. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It seemed, in a way, another story. Um, the real story was what happened when he claimed that land for himself when in fact it belonged to some other people. Yeah. That was the heart of the story. And so anything else had to be fairly ruthlessly cut away if it didn't illuminate that central drama. Okay, yeah. Uh, that makes sense. When, we, when you came here four years ago, as it turns out, to talk about Sarah Thornhill, you mm. and I had a discussion. And one of the things that you said to me was that you were losing interest in fiction. And I wonder if at the, that time you were already thinking about writing this book one life? Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, I don't think four years ago. Uh, yes, I probably was, but not as a published book, probably. I was still thinking about it just as a family. Uh, I mean, this book arose out of <coughs> memoir fragments that my mother left and also tape recordings that I'd made with her. And I, what I always thought it would be is that I would type it all up, take it to Officeworks and have five copies really nicely bound for my mother's five grandchildren. And it would be a little, you know, family story stuff. So I was probably at that point when we spoke last. Um, as for the thing about the novel, I mean, I have two novels waiting in the wings as soon as I have a moment uh, to, to be written. So I haven't completely turned my back on fiction. Oh, that's good. I mean, I asked the question because I think that this is simply more than just simply a good book. Um, it, it also seems to me that you've brought your novelist sensibility yeah. to it. it it, is, it reads much more like a novel than a memoir. It's almost mm. like you kind of completely inhabit your mm. mother's life in the way that you would a character when in, in fiction. I'm glad it reads like that because that's how I wanted it to be. It really is a, a strange animal. It's not a memoir because it's not about me. It's not a biography really of my mother, although it certainly uh, uses her memoirs as the basis for something. But I have shamelessly uh, used my novelistic um, because again, I had a bigger, there was a bigger picture here. Um, my mother was just one person who represented, I think, a whole generation of women, pr probably many generations of women. She was a very representative, what you might call ordinary woman in many ways. Um, and so the details of her life, I mean, everything in this book, um, I did invent some things, I extrapolated some things, but I certainly, nothing important. Um, I needed to say this life is more than just this one individual. She was important as an individual, but what matters more is the meaning of her life. And that's why she left the memoir fragments. She knew that not only was she representative of her, her class and her time and her sex, but the story of those people had not been written about. She was, if you like, a part of the 99%. And she knew that ordinary people leading unremarkable lives like her, men and women, but particularly the women, 
are completely left out of the culture. Novelists are not generally interested in them. Biographers generally don't write about them. For me, the turning point with this book, I'll just complete that thought, was that when I showed it to my brother, he said, this w more than five people, more than five grandchildren should read this story because he said it is like A.B. Facey's A Fortunate Life. It is an absolutely ordinary person whose story has never been told. So that's why I felt a, almost obliged and certainly permitted to use my novelistic uh, experience. I, I, I was curious about that because you say that something similar to this in the, in the introduction and mm -hmm. it seemed to me that I agreed with half of your contention which is that yes biographies are not written about people like Nance which is why a book like this is, is important apart from anything apart from it just being a good book and a, an interesting story but it seemed to me that the endeavour of literature of novels has always been to illuminate people's lives and not not necessarily the one percent. It's been the job of literature to illuminate common people's lives as well. Well, yes and no. We could have a long, long argument about this, but um, most, most of the great novels, the character that you identify with, that you want to be, is usually a person of some... I'm going out on a limb here. Think of Dickens. You know, it's the middle-class characters that you identify with. Yes, the working people are there, but they're all caricatures. And that's, I think, very much our... Um, you know, that, that's what the novel has done in the past. Novels, almost by definition, apart from a few great examples, are written by the middle class, and that's why they're about the middle class. My mother was... Her father was a shearer. Landless, they owned nothing. His, his, her father owned his his shears, he, he you know, used the blades, amazing hard work. That's all they owned, a couple of pots and pans. Yeah. No, I'm not going mm. to argue with you about it. I just, I just <laughs> was, thought I would bring it up there for a moment. Yeah. Look, you, you start this book with a, an extraordinary and graphic image, and it, the, first, the very first paragraph of the book. And I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just, for the, just read that, that you know, chapter one, paragraph one, yes. Deb, and, and then we could maybe just talk about it. Chapter one. The first memory was of crying too much and being put under her father's arm like a log of wood. He took her outside into the night. The cold struck chill against her face. There was the horse trough full of water glittering in small moonlight and her father pushing her head under. The terror of it, the cold black water up her nose, in her throat, choking her. It was only the once, but it was never forgotten. And that I did not make up. That, sh that story she told me many times. Okay, so, that, so that's, 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 a, a, that's, that's, that's kosher. Yep. straight direct from her. Yeah, yeah. And what, it, I mean, we don't normally do that as parents in, no. in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> You're crying too much, it's so we'll just take the baby outside yeah. and put its head underwater. Yeah. Well, we don't, because we don't have horse troughs, but the hospital's full of them. <laughs> Children's hospitals are full of babies who have been shaken. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Shaken to the point of their brains being damaged or killed. So yeah. um, I think, you know, the horse trough has gone, but the, the, the instinct to stop that crying by doing violence is, I'm, af I'm afraid, still with us. And that's why Mum remembered it. That's why she told me, because she was shocked. She would not have dreamt of doing that to us. Yeah. Because I think it might be fair to say that, though, the men don't do themselves an awful lot of credit in this book. Oh, because must I mean, be we, we, start, we, we start with we start with Nancy's father pushing pushing. I mean, how old is she? Two years old? Three years old? Probably younger. Yeah. yeah. Oh, even younger. I mean, okay. Well, I mean, she, if, anyway, yeah. Young. Yeah. And and then we go on and and we find um, your your own father Ken there as a a man with quite obvious weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Look, I must be in an argumentative mood tonight because I, I, I feel that um, I have tried to do justice. I mean, that's true. My grandfather comes off very badly in that, but there are other scenes where he's actually um, as tender as he can be. This is a man whose, whose emotional life and personality has been shaped by his own difficult life. Um, 
but I have shown him being tender. I'm in that moment which you would remember where he, it's true, he drops a bombshell. He tells my mother that she was an accident. You were a fluke, Nance, he says. But he has no idea that what he said is shocking. In fact, for him, it's a moment of, of uh, closeness. It's a moment of intimate revelation. It's a moment of honesty. And, and he actually he finishes up by ruffling her hair yeah. and saying, it's nice to have you here, Nance. Yeah. That's, that's right. So, which is as close as he gets to saying, yeah. I love you or something. Exactly, which she understands. Because we, I think we do understand with each other. There are people whose personalities don't allow them to show stuff easily. And most of us are prepared to come more than halfway to meet them. And my father is a case in point. He had terrible weaknesses and terrible flaws, but, you know, which of us doesn't? Who of us will cast the first stone? Um, he was also, in many ways, a very strong, brave, original, and, um, you know, original man with, with warmth that was as, as good as, as his upbringing could give him. So I, I think I've been quite fair to the men. And there are some pretty terrible women in here too, yeah, if, that's, if that, we're going to go that, there. That's true. But <laughs> I, I mean, it was just because I'd been talking to Oliveira just there uh, just a minute ago about what it's like for her to write about her father, who's still alive. I yes. would just, uh, I, I mean, what, this is the interesting thing about this book is that it's not a novel. You mm. are actually inhabiting, mm. not just somebody who lived, you're mm. inhabiting your mother, right? Yes. You get yep. right inside your mother, but you also get right inside your father. And, and I was mm. curious to know how that was for you to approach it and say, I'm now going to tell you a story that's not going to reflect well on my father. Yeah. Uh, look, I wasn't too worried about Dad because he was very frank about his shortcomings and he's in fact written his own book. Um, my father, among other things, um, he w when my mother met him, he was a solicitor, a suburban solicitor in Sydney, uh, mild-mannered solicitor during the day, but at night he became Comrade Roberts, Trotskyite revolutionary. <laughs> so my father has written his own memoir called Comrade Roberts, Memoirs of a Trotskyite Boyhood. And in that, he's pretty hard on himself. Okay. He, he admits that he was not a good husband, that he had, you know, all these weaknesses. Um, so I didn't feel that I was kind of uh, exposing anything there. Uh, and I think it's fairly obvious that the, the relationship between my mother and father, although not ideal, I mean, how many marriages are ideal? They, it very nearly worked really well. Just one or two things didn't. <laughs> so, but look, it was terribly difficult. Look, this book took me 27 drafts and eight years to write. I did write two other books in the meantime, but That's eight years... That's encouraging, actually, because of... I hope I, so, I, yeah. <laughs> I always make sure I say that, because uh, the first 26 drafts were exceptionally unpromising, and they, they, they didn't... They didn't... I mean, they told the story. They got from A to B. But what they didn't do was make it, I suppose, novelistic, in the sense that you feel you are actually inside a flawed whole human being and can understand, or several of them, and can understand where they're coming from. Mm. Because, you know, the, the job of fiction, I think, is not to judge, but to make us understand, and to make us understand the impossible to understand, the people who are, you know, evil or whatever. Mm. In fact, maybe that's the job of writing. I'm thinking of Helen Garner's book about uh, that. Well, absolutely, who, yeah. yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, which a friend of mine said is the best book they've read a non-fiction book that they've ever read recently. It's I, fabulous. Haven't, I haven't read it. Yeah, mean, the House of Grief we're talking yes. about, yes. Anything Helen writes is wonderful. But look, the 27 draft is because it was difficult. I mean, I had, for example, to talk a little bit about my parents' wedding night. Now, that is against, you know, Freud was right, the bedroom sure door should stay closed. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was, you know, peeking in. Um, that was very confronting and difficult. But at the same time, I thought, it has to be done because it, it illuminates so much about my mother and her, the choices she had. I mean, a life is a series of choices and it's what we do with those choices that makes the story in a novel or a life. And in order to explain the parameters that she was making the choices within, I had to go there. So I thought, okay, you know, this, and that's why it took me 27 drafts. I sidled, I sidled around and around and around. Well, look, you said you had a passage you'd like to read, and it might yeah. be a good time now just to give people yeah. a flavour of, of, of Nance, as it, it were. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. 
Now, one of the things that my mother was not representative is that, uh, I think I've lost track of that sentence, but in one way she wasn't representative, which is that in 1929 she did the leaving, already very unusual for a working class girl at Tamworth High in 1929, and in 1930 she began um, study to become a registered pharmacist. Again, very unusual for a woman at, th at that time. Um, the apprenticeship in those days wasn't a degree as it is now. You worked in the shop for three years learning on the job and you did a couple of courses, just a couple at the university in chemistry, botany and materia medica. And this is just a tiny bit about when she, she was 17, when she was sent away from home in Tamworth uh, to take up the apprenticeship in Sydney, in Enmore. Among 80 men, six women were doing chemistry and botany. They were expected to sit together in the front row. There was a Mavis who she got a bit friendly with and a clever young woman called Marjorie. She'd have liked to go to lunch with them and ask them what a covalent bond was. But the minute classes were over, she had to race for the tram so she'd be at the shop on Enmore Road by one o'clock. Her master, Mr. Stevens, would be at the door with his watch in his hand. He'd tell her again that a master could dismiss an apprentice for tardiness. Moira was the apprentice she was replacing. Moira had done her finals but was staying on for a week to show Nance the ropes. At the end of each day, they went over the dockets together. Some of the things on the dockets were a mystery to Nance and finally she asked, what are these FL things? Oh Nance, keep your voice down for heaven's sake, Moira said and jerked her head to tell Nance to follow her into the back room. Look, she said, they're French letters. <laughs> you know anything about them? No, well, they go over the fellas' willy, stop the babies coming. Moira, Nance was discovering, was a coarse sort of person, though not when Mr Stevens was about. Know what a willy is, do you, Nance? Country girl like you? You'd have seen the bulls and that. Well, the bulls and the horses were, in fact, all Nance knew about sex, apart from Tom Vidler's chaste kiss at the Tamworth Memorial Dance. She felt like an innocent fool, but at least now she understood about the young men who'd come in expecting to be served by Mr. Stevens and got her or Moira instead. They'd stammer out a request for a comb or a pair of shoelaces, <laughs> blushing, mumbling, spilling their change. Later, she'd see them lurking outside and when Mr. Stevens was behind the counter, they'd come in again. The fellas are awkward about coming in and asking, Moira said. Needn't be in my view. I like a fellow with a French letter in his back pocket. <laughs> so it was an education in many ways for my mother. And, and I was curious with the audience here because you, you read the word FL there and there wasn't a, a sound from the audience. I grew up in Scotland and, and everyone knew what an FL was when I was when in, really? the, in, the, in the early 60s. We all knew what, yeah. what but clearly it didn't have a lot of, a lot of grounding oh. here. Is, is, is that, that right? You all know what an right? FL? Did you grow up with FLs? No, no, it's not a lot. Not, not a lot of faces. There. <laughs> a French, a French letter. The the English, the, the French call it an English letter. Yes. Put it that way. <laughs> Look, one of the things that uh, the book, the, the the book, touches on quite a lot of themes other than Nancy's life, and yeah. one of the things that that I think that many of us in this community and also across Australia generally is that we're not, we're, a lot of us are immigrants and as such we don't really know not just about our distant history, we also don't know about our recent past mm. and one of the things that you bring to the fore in that book is this incredible schism between the Protestants and the Catholics mm. that held sway in this country for a long, long time and has mm. since completely disappeared. Completely it, just, disappeared. it just has no resonance at all. Yes. What happened? Look, I don't know. I mean, I can remember when it happened because I grew up with that thing. I can remember walking past the local, the, uh, local uh, Catholic school in North Sydney, a huge brick wall, and I used to think, oh, I wonder what goes on behind there. The first time I went into a Catholic church, I would have been like 25, and the thing that amazed me, I must have gone with a friend and heard the service, I thought, this is just like a Protestant service, except there are a few plaster saints around. What was the fuss about? But uh, I don't know. I mean, was it the DLP? Was it, was it, I don't know. Somebody probably knows. I, I don't. But it's significant because <coughs> we have a similar schism today, don't we? And in another 20 years, it will probably be as meaningless. I'm thinking, you know, Christian Muslim would be one of them, for example. Uh, in 20 years, that hopefully will be as, as kind of 
meaningless, really, as the Catholic Protestant thing. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope so. Certainly hope we so. Certainly, we, hope, we certainly hope it's not going the other way, yeah. which it, it might be. Uh, but one of the other themes also, I mean, there are, there are these things is that this the place of feminism and, and how that came into being as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the, probably the central theme of the book, isn't it? How a woman of that era, even though she had an education, even though she could start up a business, mm -hmm. she couldn't make a go of it because there was no mm -hmm. childcare, there was no support services of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, in a way that's how I started, but when I was writing about my mother, she got the pharmacy registration and my father was an erratic earner, let's say. Sometimes he did make good money, but not always. Twice my mother started her own pharmacy business. Once in 1946, when a woman even going out to work was most unusual. They'd all gone to work during the war, of course, but by 1946, they were being herded back into the kitchen where so many people thought they belonged. So she start, wanted to start a business in 1946, but it was not going to be working for somebody else, which most women who went out to work did. She was going to start her own pharmacy in Newport, which was a little suburb that didn't have one. And she was going to do that with two young children. My brothers were at that time five and three. Now, it was an amazing thing to do. And in eight months, before it all caught up with her and she couldn't cope anymore, um, she made enough money for them to build a house. But when I was writing that, and, and again, when I was four years old, she started another, another pharmacy, which I can remember. I can remember being behind the counter, getting stuck into the barley sugar while she was busy weighing the babies over on the wicker basket. But in both cases, it was the lack of childcare, the total lack of any kind of support for the domestic load or the childcare that undid her. Now, as I was writing that, I suddenly realised that although life has got a lot better, there is now after-school care, there are properly regulated childcare places, but in many ways, it's not that different. This is a story about yesterday, but unfortunately, in that respect, it's also very much a book about today. Um, I was on stage last week with Annabel Crabb, who's just written a very good book called The Wife Drought. Yes. Why Every <coughs> Woman Needs a Wife which of course we've been all telling each other for many years, but she has the statistics on how much housework men still do, even right now, and it's something like less than 20%, even when their wife goes out and has a full-time job. So one of the surprises writing this book is, yes, it was a story of how things have got better, but it's also, sadly, a story about how women's lives are still distorted by that kind of inequality. Exactly. I'd just I? like you to know that it's more than twenty percent in my household. <laughs> <laughs> but don't ask my wife how much it is, okay? <laughs> oh, Mulaney's different. I'm sure Mulaney's different. <laughs> One of the things about the the way that you depict your father, which I think is very interesting, is that he he's, he's he starts off a trotskitz, but then he goes off and he becomes something else and everything. It's almost like He's, um, he's being bat battered by the winds of ideology. <laughs> the, and I recognise that very clearly. I, I, as a young man, I remember mm. believing in things and you would go along to meetings and everything like that and then that would stop. Mm -hmm. But it, there's a kind of... The, the st I think you do this very well in the book because there's two sides to the question because there's, there's these waves of ideology that are changing and one will blow one direction and then the other will blow the other direction. But it's almost like in order for the changes in society that have occurred, that we needed to occur, these people needed to be parts of these movements. There needed to be people who were caught up in them and believed in them. Mm. Is, that, is that correct? I think absolutely. See, I'm for once agreeing with you. Uh, I do agree well, with so. that. We, we, we'll disagree again in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I think one of the reasons Mum <coughs> liked Dad was that he represented the life of the mind. He represented, I mean, these, these are two people who had just got th gone through 10 years of the Depression, which started, you know, the year my mother started doing pharmacy was 1930. That's a very significant year. So uh, this was a whole, it looked like the end of capitalism, that time in their formative young years that they had just both grown up through. Um, so when Dad became a Trotskyite, it did seem like a solution, and he represented to her, you know, she'd grown up in this ignorant, badly educated, rural working class background where people didn't think about big ideas, mainly because they had no power to change anything. 
Dad had this other thing that you looked at the world, you saw what was wrong with it, you applied your brain to it, you read your marks, and you thought, we've got the solution here. And that's a very attractive idea. Yeah. In Dad's case, look, I think Dad had that thing which I've seen in, in other men that, I, that I've known, which is that they love to be, um, I think I use the phrase in the book, the, lost gla the, the glamour of the lost cause. So Trotskyism, when, my, when Dad was a Trotskyite, it was actually a subversive organisation, it was illegal. He loved that kind of cloak and dagger secret. It was so romantic. That's why his memoirs are about his, probably about 18 months as a Trotskyite. They were his glory days, his, his romantic days, the way other men sort of boast about their wartime experiences. Dad, Dad's Trotskyite days were that. And like so many who were on the far left, he of course swapped to the far right, um, fairly gradually. Uh, on the way standing for Parliament in the seat that Bronwyn Bishop now holds, which is a lovely little bit of sort of, you know, I look at that and I think, isn't that interesting? Um, so one of the things that I was very interested in writing about this was that this, that 20th century that my mother and father lived through is a period that I realised I didn't know a huge amount about that bit of history, and yet it's the direct uh, forebear of the history that I'm living through now. So when I make political decisions about who to vote for, uh, it's because of what happened in my parents' generation. And yet, when I went to do the research, I realised how sadly ignorant I was, really, of some of that. So I thought this book will be, as well as the opportunity of telling my mother's story, it's an opportunity to tell the history of that time through a particular little window in order, perhaps, hopefully, to illuminate the choices that we have today politically and in other ways. I mean, there is rather a nice description of how they meet, which is at one of these, one of these meetings. Um, and then the courting takes place, of course, by <laughs> her going to listen to him preach <laughs> in, in a church on a Sunday. <laughs> well, not, not quite, but almost. My, my father was a Christian socialist. Um, <coughs> he was actually a Trotskyite, but the cover was that he was a Christian socialist, which was a kind of you know, like uh, a lot of church people were Christian socialists, so it was a very respectable way of being a socialist. Um, and mum and dad met at a meeting of Christian socialists. Bishop Moyes from Armidale was a great Christian socialist. He was giving a lecture. So they met there. Um, and yes, their first date was to go and hear dad give a talk on um, the suppression of democracy in Australia. I've forgotten the exact, exact title. He's, he, he had written and had published a pamphlet on it. And, and his, the, the first date was to invite this woman to, to watch him deliver this speech on the suppression of democracy in Australia. And somehow or other, I've got it confused, because <laughs> I thought it was in a church. That he was well, he was a lay preacher, um, but um, th he was not at all religious. So, okay. um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we, um. <laughs> it was well. The way he put it to me was very bluntly. He said, "You know, a congregation was a captive audience." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've got a question here about that is kind of just a one-off. Mm -hmm. Why didn't she go to Edinburgh? Ah, yeah. I mean, that, excuse me for people who've not read it, mm. but she gets an offer to go with a man to Edinburgh, yeah. and she doesn't, she doesn't accept, even though he invites her twice. Yeah, look, um, the business that she was in, uh, the pharmacy business, was sold to a young man called Charlie Gledhill, who was a pharmacist, and, but he was also um, wanting to be a doctor. He was doing medicine. Um, and he was married, and his wife very sadly died in childbirth, and he was obviously a charmer. I've actually met... Um, Charlie Gledhill's nephew, and it was uncanny because I had written about Charlie Gledhill as a particular kind of very charming man. Um, a man who the minute you meet him, you know that he's the kind of man who really likes women, you know, and it's a very nice, it's not at all kind of sleazy, it's really nice. And when, I, when Lloyd opened the door, I thought, this is exactly what I've been writing about. Yeah. I was right. <laughs> so, Charlie Gledhill is this charmer. Uh, Mum knows him quite well, of course, working under him. Um, that perhaps didn't come out quite the right way. <laughs> um, anyway, his wife, who he adored, died in childbirth, and he then seduced my mother about six months after his wife died, 
he seduced my mother, took her out into the bush, she said, and uh, made love on a blanket. Now, she was a little bit in love with him, but she was pretty sure that he was not in love with her. He needed comfort and company after his wife had died, and he certainly liked her. And when he said, I've been offered this place in Edinburgh to continue my surgical studies, will you come with me? She was very, very tempted, and all the rest of her life she often said to me, perhaps I should have gone to Edinburgh with Charlie. But at the base she knew that he didn't love her, that he was kind of not exactly using her. I think she could see that it wouldn't, it wasn't going to last. Also, he was going to become a big shot surgeon, which in fact he did. There's a piece in The Lancet by him, he invented some new way of doing something with your ear, nose and throat. Um, and she would be this kind of half-educated pharmacy friend from the colonies because he wasn't saying, let's get married and we'll go to Edinburgh. It's not that she cared much about being married or not, but what that represented. Yeah. So it was one of those paths not taken. We probably all have them in our lives. What would have happened if I'd, you know, gone out with him or not gone out with him? Well, one of the things that happened, we wouldn't have you here. So that's kind of important. Yeah, well, when I met Lloyd, I thought, isn't this funny? It's like, um, you know, this man could be my kind of sort of brotherish kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> Nance was, a, was a, a, a very literary soul, wasn't she? She loved mm. poetry and yeah. she loved books and well, particularly poetry. Keats yes. figures quite strongly in this book. Yeah. The, the half in love with ease or death and all mm. those, those lovely lines. The funny thing about the book is that although you've written it, it's about your mother, you don't exist in it at all. I don't think it's a spoiler to tell the audience mm -hmm. that, it, that it ends where you begin, as mm -hmm. it were. Yeah. But I wonder how your development or your, you becoming a writer was affected by your mother's literary sensibility. Obviously, it was very, I think it was very important to it, although the fact that my brothers didn't become writers means that it takes more than a literary mother to make you a writer. It takes some other kind of madness, basically, some other kind of dysfunction, I suspect. Um, look, Mum loved literature. She was very lucky that at Tamworth High, in the muddle of her education, and at Tamworth High, which in those days was not a good school, but there happened to be one fabulously charismatic teacher there, a man who later started the Cell Block Theatre in Sydney, a man called Bill Crisp, okay. right, um, and he taught them Keats and Shakespeare and clearly he communicated the magic of literature. So that for all her life, um, mum, well she wa actually wanted to be an English and history teacher, not a pharmacist, but her mother talked her into that. All her life, mum turned to literature to explain, it was like a, it was like a user's manual for life, it was like an instruction manual for life. You had a puzzle about love or hate or grief or whatever, you turn to literature because someone before you would have experienced it and written some fabulously insightful piece of literature about it. So there was a point when my mother was so miserable as, a, as, a, as an apprentice pharmacist that she thought very seriously for a moment anyway about throwing herself under a tram and ending it all. And she didn't actually tell me this, but I think she would not have disagreed with my enhancement of that scene, which is that the thing that made her not throw herself under the tram was remembering Keats. Many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. Uh, he talks about how wonderful to cease on the midnight with no pain. Now, Mum would have known that poem, and she would have, the way I've written it in the book, she would have at some level known that Keats had been there before her, he, like hundreds of thousands of people, had also known what it was like to want to die. And he had left this record in literature. He had somehow made that terrible idea into beautiful, beautiful poetry. And in sharing it, somehow, it's not, there's no argument not to kill yourself. But somehow in sharing it, you know that you have just joined a long line of humanity back down to the dark ages who have been there before. You know, you are not alone, is the basic message of literature. That's lovely, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're gonna go over to questions in a minute, but just mm. one more last question, what's next? You've got a couple of novels in the, in the wings, A Couple of say? novels, yeah, I've got two, uh, again, what they call historical novels, novels set in the past, I prefer to call them. <coughs> 
um, about women. I, I do love to write about the stories that, you know, I feel have not been sufficiently written about. One is about, um, oh, perhaps I won't say, they're still just gleams in my eye and it's dangerous to talk about them when they're at that delicate stage. You know, the best part of writing a book, I think I've said this before, I, hope you, I have, don't, haven't told you before, the best part of writing a book, perhaps the only unalloyed joy in writing a book, is the moment when you're standing in the shower and in the steam there, it forms in all its absolute perfection. This book is going to be a corker. It's yeah. going to be fantastic. <laughs> and the minute you step out and dry yourself and sit at the desk, it's all downhill from then on. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, I, I can concur. <laughs> um, do we have any roaming mics? I, I don't, we, do have a, we do have a roaming mic, so we'll just grab it and we might see if there's anybody who has a question for you here, Kate. Yeah, look, the question I wanted to ask is about, uh, um, you know, because you're writing about family, um, I wanted to ask a question about memory. Um, uh, I've got three sisters and three brothers and whenever we talk about uh, anything to do with family history, everybody's got a different aversion of what went yeah. on. Yeah. And I, I just <coughs> wonder about what, you know, how, 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 did, how did your memory and your mum's memory and your family's memory, how did, how did, that, how did you kind of work with that in, in writing the, the book? Well, as uh, Stephen said, most of this book was, was the, you know, the, the events occurred before I was born, so there was no question of my memory. It's quite true, though, and it's one of the things I think is... I mean, it's why the, the, the search for any kind of truth is absurd, because we all remember everything totally differently, and that's a fabulous enrichment. I mean, all those things happened, at least in our head. I only have now my... One, one of my... I did have two brothers and Chris died, but I still have Stephen. And it was so interesting listening to what Stephen uh, remembers and the things that he told me. Um, he's seven years older than me, but, you know, I remember certain things about our family, but the thing that he remembered was every car that our family had ever owned. <laughs> The make, the model, the colour, you know. And that was fantastic. I mean, there's a thing in the, in the, in the book about one of the cars, which I wouldn't have known. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, so Marvin's got a question here, don't just in the same, just a bit further along the row there. Uh, Kate, I was just wondering whether, what happened between the 26th and the 27th uh, ah. version, whether there was some magic happened or was, what fell into place because... Uh, it's a very good question. Look, what happened is that the very first draft was the draft that I was going to take to Office Works, and it was only my mother's words. It was just her memoirs and the recordings strung together and edited just to make it sense and make it you know chronological. And uh, at the point when I realised that I wanted to tell a bigger story than just um, the, the raw events, her memoirs are not particularly colourful or detailed. Then I realised I had to intervene, like a biographer, and I thought, that's all right, I'll write a, st a standard sort of biography where you have a, a matrix of narrative, which is from this kind of um, invisible um, authorial voice, and they will be little bits of my mother's memoirs, or quite big chunks, you know, quotes, like a biography of a novel, of a novelist will quote, you know, from the letters and so on. So I thought about that. And from that point, so draft two to about draft 26, this set up this incredible tension that I could not make work. First of all, I had two voices in the book. I had my mother's voice and I had my voice. And I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't make it work somehow mixing those two voices. I hate books with more than one voice, actually. I usually just skip one. I choose one and, you know, like possession. I only ever read the bits that were not in italics. <laughs> um, so that was the difficulty I had. Now, with every draft between 2 and 26, I cut out a little bit more of my mother's actual verbatim memoirs. Between draft 26 and 27, and this shows you how difficult it was for me to do this, I finally got rid of them all. So the only place where you read my mother's actual verbatim memoirs is in the captions to some of the photographs. There's also a chunk on my website for anybody who wants to read it. That's how long it took me, and it felt terrible to actually kind of write her out. But what I realise is that every sentence, just about, in the current book has a phrase, sometimes the whole sentence, a bit of dialogue, which is, in fact, straight out of the memoirs. So this feels like a collaboration. It feels as if she has been giving me a lot of the words, 
I've provided some others. We have kind of written it together. But that's a very good question, and that's, at draft 26, I thought, it's the wonderful thing about computers, I thought, it's okay, what I'll do is I'll just delete them all, I can always go back, it's always still there on the computer. And as soon as I took them out, I realised that that was the way to go. And, and it is a very good question, and I think that <coughs> the piece that you, that, that you spoke just before when people applauded was that passage that you've got about her almost committing suicide, throwing herself under a tram, is so novelistic, and it, it, it's in, it, it, I've got about four passages throughout the book that I've marked mm. to demonstrate, mm. and that was one of them, where, mm. you, where you actually start to inhabit her completely, mm. and so the book becomes her speaking through you yes. rather, than the, rather than the other way around. Yeah? That's a really good way of putting it, actually, her speaking yeah. through me. I sort of become the, 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 the medium. Yes, mm. that's right. Mm. Now, do we have some more questions? Yes? Hello? Yes, there's um, a lot of really personal and intimate details in, in the book. Um, it must have felt a bit strange uh, writing those in. Did you actually have detailed conversations with your mother about that? Yes, you may be thinking of, for example, her premarital affair with Charlie Gledhill and also after she was married, she, had, she actually had more than one affair, but I've only written about one in the book. Um, things which... Uh, right, right. <coughs> yes. In many families, they would be the skeletons in the cupboard, which another sort of book would be the unrevealing, you know, the, uh, the finding of all those, the, the, the skeletons clanking out of the cupboard as somebody goes looking for the family story. And in a way, that's a better story because it's got that quest and it's got the surprise and, oh, gosh, I've got, a, I've got, you know, three siblings that I never knew about. Oh, my father had a whole other, etc. None of that was true because my mother told me everything. Now, if there are, in fact, <coughs> skeletons in the cupboard, she's hidden them so well that I haven't found them. And it's a great gift to, to me because there were no surprises. She had no middle-class shame, perhaps it was because she was not middle-class, about things like having an affair or talking quite bluntly about her sex life, basically, uh, not in quite so many words. Um, but she said to me, for example, once she talked about my father, and their marriage and the fact that it wasn't terribly happy, this is when I was, you know, 17 or 18, kind of old enough to have those conversations. She said, Mum, she said, look, what you've got to remember is that um, nature doesn't care about the happiness of two people in a relationship. All nature cares about is that a good sperm has met a good egg and produced robust offspring. And your father and I may not have been happy, but in biological terms, we were a very good mating pair. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> So, you know, she didn't talk about the plumbing of her relationship with my father, but um, in the, she, she, she had no shame about the fact that, you know, we are, we're animals. She, she, she was enough of a scientist to be quite un, unembarrassed by any of that. So I, I thank her for that because I feel sorry for people who go looking and find these nasty secrets that you then have to deal with. Another question? Oh, oh yes, this one there. Thank you. All on this side. What about you lot? I know. I don't, oh, there's, oh one. there's one over there. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll take a question here, and then we'll take questions from Judy in the back, and we might have to finish at that point. Hello, Kate. I'm just wondering about how you manage your working day. How do you manage a massive research material, the housework, ah. etc. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, look, the short answer is it's all a muddle. It's much easier now that my children have grown up. My daughter's 25, my son's nearly 30. Uh, so obviously I've got, you know, very much more time. Um, when they were little, I had a real problem. As I, as I said, I, I so much understood what my mother was going through, even though it was so much easier for me. And in fact, Mum supported me very much when I was writing. I tell this story in the book, but I'll tell it again now. Uh, when my children were little, she used to look <coughs> after them one or two days a week. And I'd go over to her house and she would hand me a cut lunch and a thermos of tea, just as, you know, like she'd made me at school. She would take the, the baby, whichever it was, and I would go off and, and park near her house in a nice little spot, and I'd get into the back seat of the car with one of the kids' boogie boards across my lap as a desk. I hand wrote in those days. And I would have, for a couple of hours, the absolute freedom to completely submerge 
in my work, which is a luxury that very few mothers, I think, have, maybe fathers too, but we're like sleeping dogs. There's always a tiny little bit of our consciousness that is thinking, are the kids okay? Is there something I should be doing? So she, she supported me in that way. It has, been a, it has been a muddle. My son said to me once, when he was about 15, 13 maybe, he'd been reading John Marsden, who's written a whole string of books, dozens of books. Tom said, Mum, how come you haven't read as many, written as many books as John Marsden? <laughs> and I thought, it's time for Tom to know the facts of life. And I said, Tom, it's because I'm a woman, and Tom, John Marsden has a wife. Now, in fact, I think John Marsden may not have had a wife, but the, the principle... <laughs> the, 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 I thought he did, and the principle remains. <laughs> and it had a profound effect, I think, on my son. There was this long silence in the car, and then as he got out to, to go to school, he said, yeah, I get it, I understand. So it was a muddle and a struggle, and I wouldn't have missed a moment of it. <laughs> Judy, darling, at the back there. Actually, you probably answered it. I was just going to ask what your mother thought of you as a writer. Oh, look, she was so proud of me. Um, whenever she could, she would come along to events like this, and I can assure you that there, is, there are few things harder than doing something like this with your mother sitting in the front <laughs> row. <laughs> because there's an element of, you know, uh, there's an element of performance and persona, and here's someone who knows you intimately. You can't get away with a single thing. She was so proud of me. I gave her, of course, f the, the, you know, the first copy that I got of each of my books. And after she died, I found them all, each one wrapped beautifully in either, you know, brown paper or old wrapping paper from a present, very thrifty, you know, to protect the, uh, the dust jacket. And so well-thumbed. She'd clearly read them many times. So, yeah, she was very proud of me. She never pressured me in any way to be a writer. She was as surprised as I was when it turned out that I was a published writer but she was very pleased. And there's a lovely resonance to that in that she was first given that book of Keats's collected works and what she did was wrap it in brown paper and put it in a glass-fronted... That's book. right, yes. So that I now have it still in immaculate condition with its gold lettering. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you so much, Kate Granville. Please put your hands together. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. That was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you.